Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, and I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. From verse 11, but... When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, hypocritically with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Blessed be the reading of God's word this morning. Let me just pray and then we'll get into the text. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the tenacity of Paul here in Galatians to stand up for the gospel. Lord, we pray that we... uh, would not just be the believers in the gospel, but we would actually live it out, that we would actually be followers of the gospel. God, would you help us to um, know it and to love it and to live it out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So one of the first things that you notice um, in this text in chapter 2 is there is a problem in the church. There's a problem that's arisen in the church that uh, Paul said he's been given a revelation of something that's going on. And I just took and and highlighted the term or the phrase in verse 2, those who seemed influential. Uh, There had been some people who had worked their way into the church who seemed to be of importance, who seemed to have been influential. And uh, if you just take a pen or if you just take a marker and you just kind of go down through the text today, you'll see that pops up multiple times. It appears again in verse 4, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. And then again in verse 8, those who seem to be influential. And, and or, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 6, those who seem to be influential is, is used twice. And then in verse 7, Paul refers to them as when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. There's a problem that appears and Paul has come to address the problem. The problem is that the, the, the gospel that Paul had given the church was under attack. The gospel was Jesus plus something else. And Paul said, no, it's just Jesus alone. The gospel is the good news about what Jesus has done. And so Paul's coming back to defend the gospel and to reiterate the freedom that we have in the gospel. Paul's warning the Galatian church to understand there's no difference between Greek and Gentile believers in how they receive the gospel and that there's no teaching that says otherwise that we should listen to. I think it's important to understand... uh, Barnabas and Titus, and so I don't have time to read all of Acts to you today, but um, I would encourage you to, to go back and look at some of that, and we're going to look at just a little bit from the book of Acts, just to kind of give us an idea of who these guys were. Barnabas, if you remember... Uh, was a generous man that came to the uh, apostles. Barnabas uh, sold everything that he had, sold his land and laid it down at the feet of the apostles. Barnabas is also, we see him in Acts 14, um, alongside of Paul in Lystra where Paul was stoned almost to death they threw him out of the city and so Barnabas was with Paul through these events and so it it is uh, probably no wonder why Paul chose Barnabas to go with him to Galatia to to be a comfort to be a source of uh, a brother who he knew um, would be with him. And then Titus, who is mentioned all throughout 
the Pauline epistles, and um, he was a Greek, and he was actually, uh, in the book of Titus, we learn, was sent to Crete, which was a, a, a very Greek island that was uh, known for violence and for um, teaching uh, Greek mythology and Titus was sent there to plant churches and to be uh, a defender of the gospel there. And so here Paul takes him with him uh, to the church in Galatia to defend the gospel. He's, he's proclaiming the truth of the one gospel, the only gospel, and trying to encourage the church not to listen to false teachers who try to add any condition to the gospel message. Verse 1, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation set before me, set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. The 14 years, I think, is almost Paul's way of saying, after all this time, I have to come up and defend the gospel. We should, we should be beyond this now. It's, it's almost a, a marker of frustration for Paul. It's almost as if the churches forgot the cost of the freedom that they had been given. I think... There's a couple ways to look at this passage. I think Paul is really wanting the church overall to understand um, where they stand, where they're justified. And we're going to get to that in the next couple of weeks. Paul is going to get to the heart of you know Galatians 2, 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There's a cost to freedom. You know, we we toss around that that saying a lot, especially this time of year, where uh, freedom is not free. But what does that actually mean to me and to you? Not as Americans, but as Christians. How do we understand what we've been given in the gospel of grace? comes at a great cost. I think we need to understand that freedom is not just costly to obtain, but it's costly to maintain. So first I'd like to look at what this freedom cost us to obtain. I think Paul is, is saying, I'm willing to make trips wherever and however to get stoned, uh, to be beaten, to be rejected, to, to have confrontations. I'm willing to do whatever it takes for people to understand what it costs to follow Jesus. Paul talks about the cost 
of liberty, oftentimes we don't understand that it cost us everything whenever Jesus says, follow me. When Jesus called his disciples, those were the words he used. He used the words, follow me. He didn't use the words, fight for me. He didn't use the words, defend me. He didn't use the words, uh, live the way you think I that live the way that you think you should live, but he says, live by following me. What I don't think we understand in America today is that means it cost us, all of us. It cost us everything. It cost us all of ourselves, any and all part of us. We must deny ourselves completely if we are to follow Christ. If you're following someone, that means you're not going where you want to go. You're going where they want to go. To follow Jesus completely, we have to understand one truth about Jesus. The grace that Jesus Christ gives us is all-sufficient. It's all-sufficient in all areas of life. It doesn't mean that you, you can trust Him over here for this situation, but over here, just run in doubt. It doesn't mean that you can trust Him here and then over here, be fearful. It means that the grace that He gives us is all-sufficient. We don't have to doubt and we don't have to fear and we don't have to live out of shame and guilt and remorse even though we do the cost of following jesus means a hundred percent self-denial that there's no part or no involvement that we play in the purchase of god's grace given to us there's no act that we can perform today there's Nothing that we can accomplish in our social lives or our business lives or our family lives that's going to earn our salvation. There's no power that we can lord over sin and death or anyone else. Our only hope is in the saving grace of Jesus that is freely offered to us. The self-denial that, that we must have is a denial of our fleshly wants. It's the denial to stand up and to think that by some powerful act like fighting for Jesus, we might become worthy, that our actions will cause us to be closer to Him. That some self-denying action that we perform will actually cause Jesus to love us more. That by being celibate or by flogging ourselves or being extra repentful or would cause us to be closer to Jesus. But it just isn't true. The cost of our salvation is we have to die to our fleshly selves. By providing a holy human sacrifice. But as fallen creatures, we can't offer that. So God offered himself 
on our behalf. Here is, in verse 3, Paul says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Why is that important? Why is that in our text? Why does Paul want um, the Jewish people that he's speaking to to see this? But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, because that's what they were teaching. That's what they were preaching, that, that if you were not a certain uh, lineage, that you had to be circumcised, that you had to add this to your faith. And, and Paul is saying, no, that's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is there's only one human sacrifice that's going to work. And that's the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that God submitted himself on our behalf so that we would not need to be circumcised, so that we would not have to conform to dietary laws, so that we would not have to conform to external law-based actions to earn our salvation. Paul says, but because of false brothers who secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. I don't know where you're at in your walk with Jesus. I don't know if you've uh, come to the place in your life where you are tired where you are um, worn out, where you have been pretending for so long to be good enough, or you've been pretending for so long to be um, whatever you want to fill in the blank with. But you've never come to the point in your life where you can stand in front of the mirror and just say, I'm, I'm not enough. I am broken. There is something deeply wrong with me inside. I have sin issues and I have uh, sin problems that I can't fix. And I'll never be able to. Until you come to that point and you look and you see that it's not going to be whether or not you... um, were circumcised, whether or not you ate the right foods or you said the right things or you did the right things, it's only going to be when you say that Jesus Christ, even while I was a sinner, dead in my trespasses, gave his life for me. It's only when you realize that the greater cost of freedom is that someone that knew you completely knew how awful and and defiled you were, said, I love you completely. And I'm willing to give you all of my righteousness. You see, the greater cost is that Creator God loved you so much that He decided to pour out His wrath on His own Son so that you might be His sons and His daughters. He didn't say, I need you to do X, Y, Z. He didn't say, hey, be at Sunday school every week this year. 
hey, teach a, a youth group class, or hey, um, you know, what would be really good is if that you would just feed the homeless every weekend, or if you would be a part of the living nativity and you would take this part of ownership, or if you would take on this ministry. No, God said, I know you're incapable. I know you gossip. I know you lie. I know you cheat. I know that you steal. I know that you harbor ill will in your hearts. I know that you are, you are offensive to people. And I know that people have hurt you. And I know that the, the sin in this world, ha, that you live in the, this broken world, I know that sin has affected the way that you live. And I'm here to tell you that I love you and I'm, I'm offering you redemption, but I don't want to just come and condemn you for being a sinner. I don't want to come and chastise you for being a sinner. I want to come and rescue you from being a sinner. But I don't want to just rescue you. I don't want to just redeem you. I want to restore you to myself. I want to restore you so that we will dwell in unity the way that we did in Genesis 1 and 2. So that you may be my sons and my daughters. Paul is intent on defending the freedom that we're offered through this costly grace that God gives us through the body and the blood, through the life and the death, through the resurrection and the reigning of King Jesus. Paul wants to make sure that the power of the gospel remains solely in the power of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, not in anything that we have to offer. You see, this grace that has been obtained, Paul wants to fight for because this grace was costly for Jesus. Jesus obtained this grace for us at a, at a costly price. It cost him his own life. His own blood and his own body were broken for us. And there were other preachers, there were other teachers who were trying to deny that truth, who were trying to add to the gospel. <clears throat> Paul says in verse 5, To them we did not submit, not even for a moment. Not even for a moment did we yield to them because we wanted the truth of the gospel to be preserved for you. I, I asked the students in Sunday school, I said, what if to come to church there were, was this list of obstacles and tests that you had to pass before you came to church? What, is the, what if there was a to-do list of you have to be this before you can come in the door? Most of us are like, I don't want to do that. What if you had to pass a written test and then put together a puzzle of the maps of you know, the Old Testament. And then what if you had to maybe wrestle a bear or, you know, you know, ride a giraffe or I don't know. Just what if you had to do all these insane things in order to just be a Christian? And then I said, the problem is we do that to ourselves all the time, don't we? 
The problem is, in our minds, we put those um, limitations on ourselves. We make the gospel not free. We make the truth of the gospel perverted in our own minds. Because we're wrestling with sin, and we're wrestling with shame, and we're wrestling with um, fear. Instead of confessing and standing in the truth of the gospel. The gospel was given to sinners to be good news. What's the good news? The good news is that sin has no power over you. So why are you living as if it does? Why aren't you standing in front of God every morning and every noon and every night and just saying, God, I am a sinner. And I need Jesus. I don't need this that I'm chasing after. I don't want this that I'm chasing after. I want Jesus. As Richard said, we all have this hole in our heart because we're empty and we're broken. And the only thing that can fill it up is the righteousness of God. And he's offered it to us freely in the gospel. He said that if we will repent and believe in Jesus, that we will be saved. That the righteousness of Christ will be poured into our brokenness. And that all of our brokenness will be placed upon Christ. And the price will be paid for and has been paid for at the cross. Paul was fighting for the truth of the gospel, that it would be preserved because he knew that just even one little addition made the gospel null and void. One shackle of slavery made it not the gospel because the cost has already been paid. There's nothing we can pay to make the gospel any more real. Oftentimes we, um, maybe we understand that very well. Maybe you understand that it costs Jesus a lot to offer you grace. Maybe you've heard the good news of the gospel. Maybe that it's something that you're even willing to uh, share with others. But what are you going to do with the gospel? How are you going to share the gospel? How are you going to live it out in your lives? Verse 6 says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. It begs this question, what are you going to let the gospel do in your life so that your community will know what the gospel is? 
Paul is saying, in my life and in Peter's life, the gospel was so evident that people understood we were given this ministry so that they might understand who Jesus was to them. That even the people who came to preach a false gospel when they were in contact with Paul and Peter, started to realize, wait, that's not, the gospel I'm preaching isn't the gospel. Because I'm adding things to it. Paul had been given a ministry to preach to the Gentiles. To enfold a whole new group of people into the realm of the kingdom on the contrary when they saw that i had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised god's entrusted all of us with that god has given you and i the um The good news of the gospel. How are we going to live that out? Do you wrestle with the gospel in your daily life? Or do you just kind of have it over here in case things get really bad? I want want to talk to you just about this idea. And when I mean maintain, I don't mean it in a bad sense. When I mean maintain, I mean like to the top level of maintenance, right? Like brand new maintain. What are, how are you maintaining the gospel in your life? Did you just receive this good news and just set it over here? What happens to a boat that you just kind of get a brand new boat, you obtain this great gift, and you just set it over here on the side. Then maybe two years go by, you decide you're going to go out there and crank up the boat because it's, it's time to have a good time, right? What happens? It won't start. It won't do what it's supposed to do because it hasn't been properly maintained. It hasn't been taken care of. It hasn't been used. What are you doing with the gospel in your daily life? Are you living in such a way that the people around you go, they've got something going on in their heart and in their mind and in their soul and, and something is directing and powering the way that they live in such a way that I want that. Are people thinking that about you? You know, uh, I read an article by Sinclair Ferguson and talked about that there was four principles to the exercise of Christian liberty. You know, we hear about Christian liberty. We have this freedom in Christ, this freedom to live a certain way and to to do a certain thing. But um, it actually... um, causes us to filter all of our decisions through the lens of the gospel. Is this the way I should be living for Jesus? 
Richard has a great question. He asks his children that he's uh, asked and says, is, is what can you do what you're doing and still glorify God? Are you glorifying God by doing that or thinking that or being involved in that? Is this glorifying to God? Is this a way that a believer should be living? One of the questions that Sinclair Ferguson said that his small he overheard a small group that was in his church talking and they were asking this question, can Christians eat black pudding? And I was like, I don't even know what black pudding is, but I wouldn't want to eat it, right? And I was like, man, that, doesn't, that just doesn't sound good. Now, chocolate pudding, we might have a different conversation. But it said, to the uninitiated in the mysteries of Scottish uh, cuisine, is this, uh, this black pudding is a sausage made of blood and soot and sometimes with flour and meal. So it just sounds like, you know, blood pudding, basically. Like, this is, like, why would you even want to talk about this? But he said there was this great vigorous debate and, and they went to this, the Old Testament in Leviticus and was asking about the regulations about eating blood. And uh, he said that he's not, he wasn't aware of a theological dictionary that had an entry under B for the black pudding controversy. But, um, so, but he said, you know, it did cause them to ask some really good questions. How's the Old Testament related to the New? How's the law of Moses related to the gospel of Jesus? How should a Christian exercise their freedom in Christ? And that's where all of these things came out of, Right? Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, that's basically this whole, uh, this whole time period that we're looking at in Galatians is in, in uh, conjunction with the, the Council of Jerusalem happening. And so they sought to answer these practical questions that faced Christians that wrestled with the freedom from the Mosaic administration without becoming a stumbling block to their Jewish brothers. How do I exercise my freedom as a Gentile Christian without offending my Jewish brothers and sisters? So these were the types of questions that Paul gave great thought to. These were the questions that Paul uh, fleshed out for us in his teachings in Romans um, and first and second Corinthians, um, all throughout uh, the, his other epistles, he would answer these questions and would always point us back to the gospel. And these were some of the principles that Sinclair Ferguson kind of fleshed out of those. He said that the first thing is our Christian liberty should never be flaunted. That whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourselves and God. Romans 14 and Mark 7. We are free in Christ from the Mosaic dietary laws. Christ has pronounced all foods clean. We may eat black pudding after all. But you don't need to exercise your liberty in order to enjoy it. Paul uh, ask some very penetrating questions on those who insist on exercising their liberty, whatever the circumstance. Does this really build others up? Is this really liberating you, or has it actually begun to enslave you? 
the second Christian liberty that he says is Christian liberty does not mean that you welcome fellow Christians only when you have sorted out their views on X or Y or with a view to doing that. God has welcomed them to Christ just as they are and so should we. True, the Lord will not leave them as they are, but he does not make their pattern of conduct the basis of his welcome. And neither should we. And the third principle, Christian liberty ought never to be used in such a way that we become a stumbling block to one another. Paul states this principle not as a spur-of-the-moment reaction, but a settled principle that he's thought about and he's committed himself to. When that commitment is made, it eventually becomes part of our thinking and it directs our behavior instinctively when a given liberty in Christ in order to be the servant of others, not in order to indulge our own preferences. And the last, Christian liberty requires grasping the principle that we produce this true biblical balance. We ought not to please ourselves for Even Christ did not please himself. There's something devastatingly simple about this. It reduces the issue, the basic question of our love for our Lord Jesus and our desire to imitate him since his spirit indwells in us and makes us more like him. He ended with this thought. From Calvin and Luther, he says, This all uh, part and par- parcel of living, are living between the times that we're already in Christ and that we're free, we do not yet live in a world that can cope with our freedom. One day we will enjoy the glorious liberty of being the children of God. One day we can eat black pudding whenever we want, but not yet. And as Martin Luther wrote, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. And a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. As it was with the master, so it is with the servant. Paul is is not saying how great he is because he has been given the gospel to share with the Gentiles. He's saying that he has been given the gospel to serve to the Gentiles. When they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we would go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. God's called us to ministry. God's called us to share the good news of the gospel. Paul went and and shared with this church the reality of what the gospel looks like. The only thing they asked him to do was to remember the poor, and he said, that's the very thing I was eager to. To do, We've talked a lot about who rich and poor. The poor are probably the most disadvantaged of hearing the gospel. 
Think about it. How did you get here today? Got up. You had clothes to put on. You probably had food to eat. Probably had gas in your car. Somehow you got here. If you're poor, those are all obstacles. Paul is telling the church, we've got to remove the obstacles to the gospel. The very thing he was eager to do was to share with those who are most broken, those who are most in pain, those who are most uh, disadvantaged by sin, and to, to bring to them the good news of the gospel. Now, I would also argue that the very rich are also very poor. The very rich have so much wealth that they don't see their need for Christ. And, and to me, that would be the poorest of the poor. And so whether you are going to the very rich or the very poor, whether you're going to the Jew or to the Greek, whether you're going across the street or across the country, you need to take the one message that will change the world. And that's the gospel. Let's pray. God, as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would be overjoyed by the reality that you love us, that you came to rescue us from sin, that the good news of the gospel is even more real right now than it was five minutes ago. That your word is living and active. That your word is going forth and is changing cultures and is drawing people into the kingdom of God that you're not done yet. That your story is still being written and that you are working in and through us that we might be ministers of reconciliation. That we would go wherever you call us, that we would minister to whoever you put in front of us, and that, Lord, that we would be willing to leave everything behind. To tell the gospel story. Oh, God, would you let us point people to Jesus today as we leave this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.